1996, I got to be on a planning team for a youth conference. It was for Western Canada, called Canada West, really creative name. Um, and uh, we had a great time at that conference, and there was a conversation at the very end of that conference um, amongst some of the people who were planning it about maybe we need to have a conference for all of Canada, the Presbyterian Church, a youth conference for all of Canada. And uh, that hadn't happened at least in quite a while. Um, and uh, similar conversations were happening in an Eastern Canadian Youth Conference. Um, and they were far more creative. They called theirs Rise Up, um, not Canada East. And uh, so a few of us started thinking about this. And in by about the spring of 1997, a friend of mine and I um, organized what we called the National Presbyterian Youth Summit. And we got people from every region in Canada together in Ottawa before the, the Church's General Assembly. And tried to pull on regional staff. And we did it completely unofficially, disconnected from any, uh, there was no national initiative to start this, and no approval from anyone. We just did it. And we got into a little bit of trouble for doing that. Um, and basically got told, this is great that you did it and took initiative, but, but you're not supposed to do it that way, so don't do it again. Um, and, uh, but at that summit, um, which just uh, two of us basically just said, hey, we think we need to do this, and figured out how to do it, and figured out how to get it funded, and just did it. And uh, at that summit, basically the people there resolved and said, we are going to, in the year 2000, have a National Presbyterian Youth Conference. And that was how Canada Youth got started. And uh, we have some people who just came back from Canada. They all sit here in front of them. Great. Um, and there, too. Wow, we've got lots in here. Good. Um, and uh, so they just came back from, uh, I don't know how many it's been now, but um, I guess since 2000 was the first one. It was every three years. Until now, it's everyone's wanting to do it so much. Now it's every two years. So there's six of them. Some are doing that. Good. Um, so there's been six of them. And that was just fantastic. You know what, though? I never got any credit for what I did. <laughs> and I'm not too happy about that. That's not unusual in the church. To not get credit. I'm actually fine with it. <laughs> Should we be proud of our accomplishments? I got to be on the planning team for Canada Youth 2000. I've been on a couple of others since then. And it's a great event. Wonderful. Should we be proud of our accomplishments, though? I, I think, yes, we should be proud of our accomplishments, but not in the way that we usually are. Because every time we accomplish something, I think what we ought to be doing, and notice I didn't do this in the story I told you at all, what we ought to be doing is deflecting the glory that is coming our way toward God. We ought to be boasting in God and what God is doing, and also at the same time giving thanks to the people who are around us that God is working here. Gideon's story, as we've kind of seen over these last few weeks, is a story all about what God is doing. God calls a reluctant Gideon and is very patient with him. God protects him. 
He gives him what he needs to make decisions. God reduces his fighting force from 32,000 down to 300 so that they will know that the victory could only come from God. Gideon really didn't want to fight, although he certainly wanted freedom for his people. But Gideon was not really after personal glory in any way. Maybe that's why God chose him to do that. And this morning we'll look at part of what happens in chapter 8. But it's a big chapter, so we're not going to get into everything that's in there. But we're going to look at this idea of credit and glory for God. Gideon, I think, gets things maybe about half right in his, in his last chapter. And depending on how you read the first three chapters about Gideon, you might think he's doing better or worse than he's already done. After the initial attack of the 300, the enemy is on the run. Gideon called on those reinforcements, and among those reinforcements were Ephraim. Ephraim, what they did was they took control of the river system, and in doing that, they managed to capture and execute those two chief captains of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And then we get this right at the beginning of our chapter that we read. It says this, the Ephraimites said to Gideon, what have you done to us? not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites, and they upbraided him violently. Now what this is referring to is not, not the call for reinforcements, okay? because they did get called to do that. They're, they're talking about the initial 300 fight. They didn't get called on to go and do that. And they're really mad about that. And I think we can kind of relate to that, because when we see something that's a success, we, we kind of want to be a part of it. And we kind of resent the people who are successful. Why wasn't it me? Well, why didn't you ask me? That was, that was so great. When we do that, in hindsight, we kind of look back on an experience or a thing that we could have been a part of and probably might have been able to be a part of. And then we say, well, why didn't you ask me? And that's what they're doing. They, I mean, it's pretty major language here. They upgraded him violently. They're really upset about this. <coughs> And he said to them, what have I done really in comparison with you? And he uses uh, an image or a metaphor that we really won't know what it means. He says, it's not gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer. And uh, everyone knows what that means, right? Like, I have to go look this up and find out what is this talking about. Um, basically, we need to know, first of all, that Abiezer is Gideon's clan. So when he's talking about Abiezer, he's really talking about himself. Ephraim is a half-tribe, if we remember, and um, so Ephraim is, is the son of Joseph, and so it's a half-tribe of Israel. And there's this ongoing rivalry between Ephraim and Manasseh, which is uh, Abiezer's part of Manasseh. That's the other half-tribe, and these two half-tribes are kind of always having a rivalry. And Manasseh is, is Gideon's tribe. So, um, so you have to know those two pieces first. The gleanings, if we, if we know what that is, are what's gathered after a harvest is over. Okay, so someone's harvested a field, and whatever's left behind, someone will go through and glean. They will, they will take things from the harvest that have been dropped or left behind. 
and he uses the word vintage, which, if you know things about wine, is basically the great harvest. That's what a vintage is. It's, it's the harvest. So what he's saying is, aren't the gleanings of Ephraim? In other words, you picked up the leftovers, which are these two captains, out of the harvest that we've done. Like, our harvest was going through and, and slaughtering everybody, or as many as we could, but you picked up the leftovers, the gleanings. And he says, aren't those gleanings better than the vintage? Like, aren't, aren't the leftovers actually better than the harvest? In other words, you've really done something far more significant than what we did, Ephraim. That's what he's saying. And he kind of repeats that, where he says, God has given into your hands the captains of Midian, or I can see, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? And when he said this, their anger against him subsided. Isn't their gleaning, isn't that more important than Gideon's vintage, is what he says. And they buy it when he gives them this line. What's happened here, right? An ego has been stroked. But what happened here is, what happened to the victory belonging to God alone? Where did that go? Suddenly, God is pulled completely out of the equation. And suddenly it's Abiezer's vintage and it's Ephraim's gleaning. Suddenly there are egos involved. Ephraim says, why didn't you call us up to fight? And Gideon appeases them by making them feel good about their contribution. Why didn't Gideon right there tell them the whole story? Why didn't he tell them the story of it all being God's victory and all being God's salvation and how God took it from 32,000 down to 300 and how God confused everybody and gave this vision to the enemy and getting over her. Like, there's a whole story that we heard last week. And he basically doesn't do that. He plays some politics and he basically strokes an ego. What happened to the victory belonging to God? Suddenly the victory is Gideon's and the Ephraim's. Where's the credit? Now there's this whole middle section where there's this pursuit of Ziba and Zalmuna, and we're going to have to save that for another sermon, because it's a huge section of this reading, but I do want to read it out, because we have a commitment to hearing the whole of Gideon's story. But we're going to jump out of the very end. The very end of this story, after uh, the pursuit is over and all of the Midianites, all of the enemies have been completely routed, we're now ready for Israel to have peace. And the people say to Gideon, we want you to rule over us as a king. You and your son and your grandson, we're going to set up. You're going to be our king. And Gideon says, no, that's not going to happen. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon gets this absolutely right. But then he does something kind of interesting. He says, bring me gold earrings that you've collected from everybody. And when they brought them, it weighed uh, 1,700 shekels. That's about 43 pounds of gold. Um, and it's estimated, I found uh, this somewhere, it's estimated that's about 3,400 earrings that they brought forward. And Gideon melts it all down, and he creates an ephod. And ephod can... Uh, kind of the common meaning is this is a priestly garment. It kind of looks like a breastplate usually, or one of those sort of like sleeveless uh, vests or whatever. He makes that out of gold. Um, but it can't also mean simply just image or uh, any, anything sort of created. So it could have 
here it does say thought, but it might very well be some other thing. In essence, it doesn't really matter what is meant by ephod here. What matters is the sentence itself and what it says. Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his town in Ophrah, and all Israel prostituted themselves to it there and became a snare to Gideon and to his family. There's not too much to go on in this one sentence out of the whole story. But we do know that whatever this ephod was, it was put in Gideon's hometown, and people went and worshipped it. I kind of think that as the battle has been won, we're kind of setting up a, a memorial maybe to that battle. You know, like that's how that's something that we remember. Maybe there was good intentions behind it. But eventually, and maybe quite quickly, people start worshiping the memorial itself rather than the God who gave the victory. See, Gideon, I think, gets things half right. Only the Lord should be king, he says, but let's also set up this image to help us, maybe, but never worships that. When questioned about uh, what he's done by the Ephraimites at the beginning of the story. He doesn't tell the whole story. He doesn't boast in what God has done at all. You know, he didn't say to the Ephraimites, you know, uh, even if I called you up, you'd probably be sent home because God was taking us down to 300. And it wouldn't even be me that was doing the choosing. It's God who did all of that. Gideon doesn't do any of that. Gideon sort of takes credit for what's going on. Right? He knows enough to not become the king. But he still sets something up that the people worship in his hometown. And it becomes a snare for getting in his family. Do you ever do that kind of thing? I mean, we're probably not in the habit of melting down uh, earrings and creating ephods. But do you ever half forget that it's God who is at work in you? Or maybe more than that. We're great at crying out to God, or even sometimes denying God, when things go badly, when things are failing. But when there is success, we are quick to forget about God completely and take credit for ourselves. When there's success, we are slow to tell the story of that success as a boasting in what God's done. And I did it right at the beginning of our sermon today. Right? Told the whole story of how this youth conference got created and wasn't it wonderful and then I did this great thing and, and didn't people talk and do all this. It said nothing about God. Was God involved in that? I really think so. Did God put the pieces in place for, for that event to happen so the young people in our denomination could have a great experience to be able to bring that home? Yes, God put those pieces in place. The credit is to Him and our boasting to God. Jeremiah chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 23 says this. Thus says the Lord, Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom. Do not let the mighty boast in their might. Do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth, but let those who boast, boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. 
we jump ahead to the New Testament and look at who might have got this right, I think we have to look at the Apostle Paul. Paul, I think, got success right. Maybe not 100% of the time. The Apostle Paul was responsible for the gospel, for the message, going throughout the entire known world in that time. And as he went, he planted churches wherever he went. So there were churches all over the place because of him. And yet, Paul, in his letters, makes it really clear that he will boast in nothing but Jesus. He preaches only Christ and him crucified, he says. And you know what else he does in his letters is he gives thanks for the people of the churches and for their faith. He doesn't ever say, well, look how great I am because I helped start your church. And he even gives thanks in terrible <coughs> suffering. Paul is joyful in life and in death. And so I want to read to you from one of his letters to encourage us to remember that we need to do the same, to boast in Christ and only Christ alone. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 2. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul only boasts in what really matters. And it has nothing to do with him or his abilities or anything that he did. It has everything to do with what God did in Jesus Christ. Amen.